Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a topic-based episode for you. It's actually more of an update slash topic episode. So earlier this year, I actually suffered a sacral stress fracture, and I wanted to do an episode that highlights just what that actually is, why I think it may be an underdiagnosed injury for runners and how someone could possibly fracture their sacral and potentially walk away eventually not recognizing that that had happened, as well as just look at just the different kind of processes I took to navigate that because it may be helpful for someone who's dealing with injury in general or a bone injury, because there is differences when dealing with bone injuries versus soft tissue injuries. And I wanted to highlight that as well as just some other basic things about it and the process I took, because there are a variety of different reasons that you can get an injury like this. And for me personally, I've had very few bone issues in my life. In fact, only two, but they both were sacral alla stress fractures on the right side. So for me, this particular journey was a little bit unique in the sense that I wanted to really make sure I identified every possible scenario or look into every possible scenario between nutrition, between training methodology, between everything, mechanically speaking with my form and stuff like that to really try to unearth exactly what caused it to happen. And I feel like I've likely arrived at my personal solution. And I do talk a little bit about that in this particular episode. So that's the topic based for this one. Uh, A couple things just with some other episodes too. I had done a series of episodes that are about just basically training for endurance races. It started out with an episode called Endurance Training Simplified, and that was episode 344. To go along with that one, I also recorded episode 337, The Long Run Considering the Variables, episode 346, Short Interval Simplified, episode 348, Long Interval Simplified, episode 356, easy run simplified, and then one that could be considered if you're doing a race that merits this sort of structure, episode 352, proper aid station navigation. I will put links to those in the show notes as well. But if you're interested in the catalog of episodes, you can always go over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO in order to access the full catalog of episodes. Uh, After kind of putting that together, I did think like, I do feel like I want to add one more episode to that series. And it's going to be an episode that touches on race intensity. So I talked about this in a few of the episodes, but not in enough detail where I feel comfortable that it doesn't deserve its own episode. And part of that reason is because a lot of times race intensity will not necessarily match one of the efforts that I mentioned in those other episodes. And therefore that will be an important training component to your buildup. So If you have, say, a race like what I tend to do, 100 milers, it could be an entirely different intensity than any of those other things. And you do likely want to get back to, at some point, actually working on what you'll be doing on race day. You know, For a lot of other endurance athletes, that's going to be the opposite of the spectrum. They're going to be doing something a lot faster than a lot of the stuff that they're doing potentially in training, but it may not necessarily match, like, say, the short intervals or the long intervals. So those episodes are available, look out for that next one, which is going to be the race stuff, which I might actually pair in with it, just like pacing strategy type stuff too. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, keep a lookout for that. 
other than that, uh, that is kind of the, the update there. If you do, though, like one of those episodes or any of the other ones, including this one, and want to help spread the word, I am running a new raffle option for you. So anybody who shares on social media, so like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and tags me sharing an episode that you liked, I will take note of that and enter you into a monthly raffle where I'm going to raffle off a free 30-minute consultation. So we've actually already had one winner already that I announced on the last episode for this podcast. And I'm looking to do another one at the end of this month or at the start of the next month uh, is when it will probably be announced. So if you want to be included in that raffle, all you got to do is hop on your favorite social media platform share whatever episode you want, tag me so I know that you did it. I'll capture that, screenshot it, or get the link or whatever happens to be and make sure you're entered in that raffle and announce it and then reach out to you if you're the winner for that 30-minute consultation. Along those lines, if you're interested in that sort of thing, like getting on a call with me, you can do that by heading to my website at zachbitter.com. That's where I have all my coaching and consultation services available. Those range from ready-made plans to working one-on-one with me, including those consultations. So that is just zachbitter.com. Also worth noting, if you happen to be in Austin, whether you live here or visiting and you want to meet up, I host a group run at Metz Park at 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. We actually have two starting points right now. People are starting to shift closer to the 8 a.m. now that it's getting hot out. But uh, I'm usually at both. So uh, if you head to on Instagram, it's at Outliers ATX. Those are where you're going to get the weekly updates and details. And you can head over to Mets Park and meet up with me, run. We have a four-mile option, a six-mile option, and a two-mile option at the moment. And we do both, all three of those at both eight and nine o'clock. So you can you can double up and do both sessions if you want to go a little bit longer. Finally, before we get rolling here, just a quick shout out to the show sponsors. Element, that's L-M-N-T, is my electrolyte of choice and one of my primary supporters of the HBO podcast. You can head over to their website directly by just going to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That will let them know that you came from here and it will also give you an option to get a free sample pack if you're a new customer. In that sample pack, as well as what they have available on the website is citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw, unflavored. All of them boast 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Those numbers are important to me because I actually got my sweat test done. I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid. So when I'm mixing up my element, I will use one of those packets and about two liters of water. If I'm using it in a workout, if I'm trying to preload a bit before, a lot of times I'll put about a half a pack in my coffee with that chocolate flavor. Or if it's like this time of year and really hot and I need to catch up on electrolytes after a hot training session because I might have something else in the afternoon, I might use some of that watermelon flavor in the water I'm drinking throughout the day. So head to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and take advantage of that free sample pack with your first purchase. Let me know what you think. Also, this year, I've been using exogenous ketones as part of my training and racing. There are loads of options on the market, despite the research still being new and very much growing when it comes to things like exogenous ketones. I believe it is a good enough application in recovery and performance that is worth adding for me. But I wanted to be sure that I was getting what was been shown to be available in the research. So when looking into that stuff, I discovered that Delta G is the original ketone ester out of Oxford University, 
through the work of Professor Kieran Clark, who has been a critical part of exogenous ketone research and formulation. They actually received DARPA funding in effort to design a formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has produced 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. And this includes two very recent studies that explored exogenous ketones relationships with increasing natural levels of EPO, as well as increasing circulating dopamine concentrations, improving mental alertness and improving post-exercise inflammation in endurance athletes. So what this means for me is my protocol right now is just for my key workouts. Uh, I'll take one bottle of Delta G performance 20 minutes before. And then that's all I'll have to do. If I'm racing something that's a little bit longer, like a hundred mile race, I will do that same protocol, but then I'll add an extra bottle for every three hours throughout the course of that race. If you want to check them out, you can, uh, actually sign up for a consultation. They will actually work with you to figure out if it's actually a good choice for you, how it fits your lifestyle, if at all, and give you some pointers. In fact, that's what I actually did. I actually got on the call with them and looked at my lifestyle, where the application would be. I tested some out to see if it was something I wanted to include and then went from there. And you can do all of that as well by heading to deltagketones.com. That's deltagketones.com. You can, like I said, sign up for that free consultation and dive into the research they have on that website. All right, that's it. Let's get into this next episode. One of the reasons I want to do this one is because oftentimes when I do these reflections, it's on like a training approach or some just specific things I've been doing in training or a race reflection and things like that. And those are a lot of fun but they don't always tell the full story. So I want to make sure I'm also doing them when I hit hiccups in training and things like that. So for those of you who follow me online, you'll likely know that I am, I'm actually well into the return now, but I earlier this year suffered a sacral stress fracture. It was on my right sacral ala. And I have more or less gotten through the recovery phase of that and have re-engaged with training to a pretty high level with running stuff. I'll talk a little bit about where I'm at there and kind of how I progress towards it and where I'd like to get to in the coming weeks and months. But I wanted to do an episode on this one because I think it's just an interesting topic in general for the topic as a whole of injuries and how runners deal with them and how I specifically usually look at these type of things. And then also a bit of a an insight into the specific injury I had, which is the right sacral ala partly because I think this is an injury that has been relatively undiagnosed with runners. And I'll explain why that may be. And we are seeing perhaps more of these showing up in runners now that we're just a little more aware of their potential here. Uh, specifically with ultra running, there's actually been kind of an ironic, weird uh, combination of, I believe there was four, four total, including myself, ultra marathon runners who are dealing with some form of a sacral stress fracture this first half of the year and currently in the process of kind of building back from them. Why it's most interesting to me outside of that is it's just a very unique situation for me because if I look at just my entire life through sports, whether that be running or otherwise, and just bone related things, I've never broken a bone and I've only had one other stress fracture in my entire life but it was in the exact same spot. It was the right sacral ala. So as far as stress fractures go, I think there's obviously you get, if you get one, you want to obviously look into why that is and try to make changes or adjust things appropriately so that 
that sort of thing doesn't happen again because things had to have overloaded or overrun what was sustainable in order to get there in the first place. But when you have one in the same spot, it's just a little bit more of an incentive to look at why is that? What's different about what you're doing that is creating that one spot to essentially appear to be weaker? And for me, I feel like that's maybe even more uh, more apparent because I haven't had any bone issues or stress fractures in other areas. So it seems to be like this one spot that's potentially problematic. But I want to do my due diligence with it as a whole. So I've been looking at everything from like blood work to bone scans and things like that, just to make sure there's not like a nutritional thing that I'm missing on that could potentially be leading to this or potentially just, you know, something that, uh, that I need to be aware of outside of just the general training approach and nutrition and things like that. So I've been going through that entire process basically for the last couple months as I recovered from it. And then ultimately started to re-engage some training to make sure that I'm also coming back into things in a sustainable way. So I don't end up uh, regressing back or re-injuring the same area. So what I ended up doing is I did have some precedence on this since I had this injury back in 2017. Back then, my suspicion was that it was because I changed my training environment in a relatively large way. And I suspect this is probably one of the bigger drivers for these injuries when it comes to endurance athletes. And I suspect we may see this more common with uh, ultra runners as time goes by, just by the nature of the way that people are starting to maybe train for or prepare for the sport in a year round basis. So for me in 2017, the unique situation was I had been training for a track 24 hour event. So a lot of flat running, a lot of hard surface flat running. And I found out pretty late, I want to say it was in mid-April or somewhere around that time frame that I was going to be offered a spot to the Western States 100. And that was just due to someone who had a sponsor spot was not going to be able to do the race. So they offered it to me and Western States spots are hard to come by. So I was very willing to abandon my previous race goals for that early part of the year to try to see what I could do at Western States. And because Western States as a course is quite a bit different than a flat track, I quickly switched the environment in which I was preparing for it and essentially just moved from moved or transitioned to very large training load capacity, which I very much had at the time from flats to hilly terrain. And I just, it was just too much. It was too much of a shift on the environment side of things. And I likely overstressed that area and it resulted in that stress fracture occurring the first time it was really weird because in 2017 and to some degree today, it's not the first, the first thing that the doctor is going to usually suspect. So I had some discomfort that felt like it was just some maybe lower back, upper glute, sciatic type issues. So I went in to see a, see a doctor and a physical therapist and I go through just like, you know, what's going on here? Is there something I need to get addressed, worked on? something I can do to strengthen the area, mobilize the area. So we did all sorts of things like active release therapy, different stretches and mobility type things, and really try to get that area to loosen up. And it seemed to help a little bit, but anytime I would try to re-engage running, it was like this immediate sharp pain in that lower back upper glute area where it was just like very clear to me, this isn't something I should be running on. So I sort of went through a series of about four to five weeks where I would continue the strength and the mobility stuff of that area. I'd be walking around pain-free for a couple of days. I'd be like, okay, 
if this is soft tissue, I should be able to start to test things out. But as soon as I'd go out for that run, like I wouldn't even make it a block before I would feel that sharp pain return. So it was just this very unique type of injury to me where it was clear I shouldn't be forcing through it. And it was also clear that it hadn't gone away. So I was a bit in, uh, in an area of like uncertainty there where we didn't know what was going on. Eventually the doctor suggested it's time to get an MRI. We've tried all the different things that would, would be likely useful for a soft tissue type of thing. It should have gone, maybe not gone away, but it should have, uh, it should be behaving differently at this point. So they began to suspect it could be a stress fracture. I began to suspect it was a stress fracture. We ordered the MRI turned out it was. So at this point I was like five or six weeks into it and the actual fracture had more or less already healed or gotten close to healing, which is not uncommon. Bone remodeling is about a four to six week process. So at that point, since I had been off it for the most part, I did some stupid things that I wouldn't have done had I known a, uh, there was a stress fracture back there versus something soft tissue that likely set me back a little bit uh, in hindsight, but I wasn't out there pounding out normal training. So to some degree, I was probably closer to being in the clear than than I would have been had it been like, you know, day one of the, of the process. So I was actually able to resume training maybe a couple of weeks after that. And all in all, I think I had about a seven to eight week uh, period of time where training was either severely interrupted or non-existence on the running front. And from there it was just a gradual rebuild. You know, I just, I had, I, tr I treated it like I was returning to running for the first time versus after an off season and really much behaved as, all right, let's start with a very low amount of volume, very low intensity, see how everything feels. If everything keeps checking out, then I can gradually increase training load the next week and just kind of built my way back up to the point where that fall, I was able to race the Havelina hundred at the end of October. And uh, that was more or less, you know, the point where I was like, okay, I'm in the clear for this now and I can resume training as usual approach as usual and was more or less void of any issues with that route, that type of a, uh, of a situation from there until now. So uh, the only other thing that I learned from that, that was of interest to me, and perhaps it should have been of more interest to me at the time was that I actually found out I had a, a torn right labrum, which if you look into that sort of thing, it's not something that is necessarily a, an injury that you do much about other than let it sort of stop creating issues. And you can take non-invasive approaches. I had no clue at the time that that had happened. And the only thing I could think back to that would have potentially been the cause of that would have been somewhere in like the 2013, 14 timeframe. I remember feeling like I had a groin injury that didn't really bother me after the, after a few days, but I did have like some maybe lower abdominal discomfort uh, that I was more or less just unable to do like a lot of core strength work, but running, it didn't seem to be problematic. So potentially maybe that's where I injured that, but for whatever reason, I hadn't had an MRI before that. So I had no clue that that was actually there that showed up in that MRI. Again, torn labors don't just heal, but they're also not something you need to go in and, and surgically repair unless it's creating some sort of discomfort or interfering with your, your day-to-day -day stuff. So since I hadn't been noticing it in training, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily explore that option, uh, an invasive option like that. So, you know, carried on raced throughout that whole time between 2017 and now, and then, uh, what would have been very end of April, early May, I felt that same discomfort in that lower back, upper glute area on my right side again. And it was just that very, very unique 
uh, to me, convincing pain of like, yeah, you shouldn't be running on this. So I suspected stress fracture immediately, uh, but I went into the doctor. We looked at some glute med type activations, stretches and mobility type things to try to get that loosened up just to rule out what, whether that was the cause. That actually really did help to some degree, but the, the thing about these stress fractures or injuries to that area like that, you can have a stress fracture and it can also negatively impact the muscles around it too. Or it could be a situation where those muscles around it were compromised first, and that also helped lead to the stress fracture. So I had a little bit of relief just by getting that area loosened up, but it wasn't enough to where when I would go to a run, I didn't notice that. So after doing all those movements and then having pain, being pain-free for a couple of days, tested a run, felt the pain at that point. I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely going to be a stress fracture. I just need to get an MRI to confirm it. So by like, I think five days after the initial sensation, I had an MRI ordered, done and confirmed with it in a really, really quick time frame. I think it was maybe 24, 36 hours. Uh, I was able to do it because I went out of pocket versus what will typically happen. They make you go through all sorts of different phases. And then maybe after two weeks, you can order an MRI if you want to go through insurance and things like that. But that's just one of the reasons why I think this particular in injury is sometimes undiagnosed is by the time you get to the point where your doctor is going to recommend ordering an MRI, you could be close to that four to six week window of uh, the injury sort of being on the mend, more or less. And that was my case the first time almost. So, or not almost, it, it was. So the second time I just had that prior experience to lean on and decided to go, go, go the direction I did to confirm it, find out that it was a stress fracture there. So at that point I was basically like you know, a little bit less than a week into the injury. And from there I knew the protocol of what to follow. So there is some research on this and there's one particular study that I found interesting because it actually, I, th I think it included ultra marathon runners or at least one ultra marathon runner, but they followed four runners who had these sacral stress fractures and, you know, they basically stayed off their feet or off of running anyway, very little movement as much as possible for a couple of weeks. And that usually was enough to make the pain go away, just doing normal day-to-day -day things. And then if you take another two to four weeks after that, uh, you can start doing things like cycling, maybe some strength work and things like that. You want to avoid twisting and things like that. That's going to be weight bearing and more or less start reintroducing some activity. Pool swimming is another option you can do. And then when you get to that four to six week time frame, that's where you can start to gradually reintroduce some running if it's pain-free. So <clears throat> since I caught mine early, I gave it four weeks and I had no pain in that second two weeks when I had reintroduced some cycling, some light strength work and some sled pushing and pulling, none of which caused any discomfort and began some really short test runs to see how it was feeling. And I actually did a majority of those on an incline too. So another thing about this is since you're loading up that area through impact, if you do your return to running on an incline, you can avoid generating as much impact into that area. So it's kind of like a bit of a bridge to returning to flat or the worst case, which is downhill running. That's where it's going to probably be the most aggressively impactful to that area. And uh, yeah, so I just started that process. But the other thing I wanted to be mindful of is 
why did this happen and what can I do to prevent it? So like I said earlier, I went through a process of getting blood work done, getting some bone scans and things like that to rule out that there wasn't any sort of nutrition deficiency or any sort of like bone issue that I should be concerned about in terms of it potentially being problematic or having another bone related thing occur because I'm missing something there. And all those things checked out. In fact, my bone density scored in like the top 5%. So it wasn't clear to me that that was the issue, the bone mineral density side of things. Uh, the, the blood work came back. I wasn't like out of range on anything that would suggest that, uh, that I had some sort of nutrition deficiency or anything like that. But being cautious, I basically removed a lot of things that could potentially leach the nutrients that would be beneficial for bone remodeling and bone health. So like I cut out caffeine for a while, I cut out coffee for a while. I'm not very frequent in terms of alcohol use, but I cut all that out for a while. Uh, and then just started kind of fortifying my diet with more, more products that included things like vitamin D, calcium and K2. So, uh, that was just more more or less insurance or something where I, you know, you're going to eat something. So I may as well make the inputs things that are proactive versus potentially detrimental or non-contributors to, to the bone health side of things. And then from there, I wanted to keep exploring what I could potentially be doing wrong that would result in this particular area, having this injury twice. So the next thing to try to look at for me was mechanical type stuff. So since I basically ruled out uh, through blood work and bone scans, that side of things, I want to think, what am I doing mechanically that is potentially creating a scenario where when my training load increases to a high level, this area seems to want to fail before the rest. And I started working with, uh, Vinny Crispino, who I've actually had on the podcast. He was episode 312, and Vinny's got a really interesting story. He actually broke his back and like rehabbed back towards where he's run marathons, ultra marathons and all sorts of different stuff. And we were just, he just offered to, to take a look at some of the stuff that I was doing or get, a, get an idea of my posture and my mechanics within running and things like that. And we began that process and we, we turned over a bunch of interesting stuff. So it was pretty obvious based on kind of the the visual like graphics we took from just my posture and the positions I was in when I was in a single leg weight bearing position that I had some issues that would potentially overload that right side of my body. And then it just became, let's put together a program that will help make that not an issue so that when I'm out there loading up miles and training for races and things like that, I'm not creating an environment where that right side takes on additional stress above and beyond the rest of my body to the point where things break down like this. So those included things like uh, the big ones were ankle mobility and strength, hip mobility and strength, and then shoulder mobility and strength are the three like main areas that we've been focusing on. And Vinny's got the what you'd call maybe the 30,000 foot view of what he thinks I should be doing in the long term, but I'm very much going by like a step-by-step -step process and introducing the mobility routine for those areas that he suggests and will continue to do it. It has been pretty eye-opening though, I'll say, just watching the progress. I would describe it as a situation of mostly like normalizing suboptimal stuff where there are things where you sort of adapt to them and it's not great, but you don't know what it's like to feel better until you do. 
So watching like the progress in range of motion with different angles in my ankle, different mobilities and strengths in like my hip flexors and just hip mobility, and then even shoulder mobility from the right side to the left side and seeing going through different movements that actually like really highlight for me where my left side and my right side differ from one another has been like a level of progress in roughly three to four weeks that is pretty apparent to the point where when I go out for a run in the morning now, first thing in the morning, I'm noticing just like feeling a lot more fluid just right out the gate from the first step where I don't feel like, you know, that sensation that runners time runners will often get, especially in when they're deep into a training block where the first mile or two things are just kind of loosening up and feeling like they're normalizing before you kind of get into a good groove. I'm feeling like that, that is like right out the gate. First step feels really smooth compared to what it was before. So I'm going to keep working with that. And maybe I'll have, uh, if Vinny wants to come back on, we can do a, an episode. It just highlights exactly what I'm doing and why it's working. Cause he can definitely discuss it in a higher level than I can, but uh, I'm excited to be uh, kind of correcting some of these things that are potentially problematic uh, in my own mechanics and form to hopefully just make me a better runner and more healthy, more or less throughout the course of uh, training and racing in the future. So my, my goals at the moment, obviously get back into shape specific to ultra marathon running. I didn't really get terribly out of shape. I didn't have to take a significant amount of time off. And part of it, I was able to cross train. I would say cross training was much more specific to like a trail or a steeper type of course than it would be for a flat one, which is actually, uh, the, the point I'd like to be at my, my goal originally before this injury was I was going to do one more flat ultra and then transition over to doing some trail events for a while before kind of coming back and doing some flat ultras. Again, I like to go back and forth between those things when I can, when I feel like I'm my best, I'm targeting the races I enjoy or the ones I really like to do, which are typically runnable hundred milers, but I'm taking breaks from them from time to time where I'll train for something like the San Diego hundred or you know, a race that just offers a much different climate or different environment than what I would typically be doing on a flat hundred miler or a track or something like that. And I think that allows me to remain excited and motivated to do those flatter, more controlled type events. And I've been there for a while in terms of needing to kind of get back and do a trail race. And one of the the biggest like hurdles to that is I've been more or less bouncing back from some form of injury for for a, for a bit, I had that ankle injury last year that kept me from really doing anything on any real trail for a while. So now that that is 100%, it is uh, something where I'm confident that I can go out and do a more legitimate trail race if uh, if something pops up that is uh, worth, worth training for in racing, in my opinion, and likely the direction I want to go anyway. So that's the plan is first get a few more weeks of solid training in just to confirm that everything's heading in the right direction and make sure I don't have a setback to the point where I'm back to square one. And then once I'm kind of confident in that department, start looking at some races to do and likely at least some combination of trail stuff. What I've been doing right now has actually gotten me excited for some trail races because like I sort of alluded to earlier, my training hasn't been quite as one dimensional as maybe it has been the last couple of years with a lot of flat running. I've been sort of doing a combination of some flat running at kind of what I call my base intensity or my, some people would call it zone two or like just under aerobic threshold. 
but I've been supplementing that with some treadmill incline workouts where I'll set the treadmill at like 15% and just do like 40 to 60 minutes of just climbing on there. Uh, usually at around a 12 minute mile pace or five miles per hour is a pretty good groove where I'm, you know, getting my, I'm keeping my heart rate relatively low, but I'm engaging those mechanics a bit differently. And that's gotten me excited to do something that's a little more, a little more varied in terrain. And I'm going to keep that in the training, especially through the summer here in Austin. It's so humid out. It's sometimes nice just to stay on the indoor treadmill. So if I can get a good workout there and not be bored to tears from it, then, uh, I'm going to take that option, even though you still sweat plenty on those treadmills inside the gyms, it's a little bit, a little bit better than the humidity outside. So right now I've got a pretty good variety of training, uh, at the moment, uh, between the flat running that I am doing the treadmill incline I'm doing, I'm still been doing quite a bit of sled pushing and pulling, which I think is going to be a really interesting tool to have while I'm preparing for more trail races and just a great strengthening tool as well. So I'll do like these longer sled push and pulls where I'll use this product called the torque tank, where it's got a resist resistance to it. And you just push the sled forward and then you have this waist harness where then you pull it back. So I'll just push and pull that back and do like a lower intensity, higher volume version of that workout sometimes too. And I think that's going to be a useful tool for uphill and downhill work and just uh, engaging some of those muscles a little bit differently than what I would traditionally through my running training. And then I'm just, you know, I'm keeping the strength work and then that mobility stuff that I've been working with Vinny on in the routine as well. And it's just been a really fun blend of training. And I think it'll be just a little more conducive for, for trail ultras than flat ultras. And that's the direction I kind of want to go anyway. I've also included some cycling. I actually was doing quite a bit more of it while I was in weeks three and four of the stress fracture when I could start reintroducing no impact type stuff. And that's been a lot of fun too. Although I'll say like, of all the activities that I've included, cycling is one that I'm, I go back and forth with in terms of how much I enjoy it. I, I I'm good for about 60 to 90 minutes, usually a few times a week, but I would prefer to be running or pushing the sled or hit, hitting up the treadmill incline at this point too. So I've sort of pulled back a little bit on the cycling, even though I think that's a valuable tool to be used when training for hilly ultra marathon courses as well. So to some degree, I'll probably keep it in the rotation that's kind of all I got with the, the sacral stress fracture stuff and the, the bounce back from that or the continual bounce back from that. But uh, if you have any questions about it or any comments, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me on my social media channels, which is just at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter. My website is ZachBitter.com. If you want to shoot me a note through there, or if you want to contact me specifically about the podcast, you can head to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Element T Electrolytes and Delta G Ketone Esters. Element T Electrolytes can be found at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G Ketones can be found at deltagketones.com. Also, give them a follow at Delta G dot ketones on instagram thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with zach bitter hey folks thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast for those of you who are regular listeners you'll likely know i'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach if you're looking for a little extra help with your training 
and programming. I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.